Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello and welcome to Off The Beaten Track podcast. I hope you're all well. I'm your host, Stu Whiffin. And today, I'm joined by Dave Spears. Now, Dave Spears, I appreciate some of you may not know. However, what you will know is the music and the artists that Dave has worked with for many, many years. Dave was kind enough to invite me and my colleague Ben, um, who is Ham Plaza. Um, big shout out to Ben at the moment, actually. He's, Ham Plaza have just put out their debut album. Um, it came out on the 3rd of December last year, um, written mixed and produced by, by Ham Plaza. Uh, it was mastered by Warren Soko over at United Recording Studios. And, and it's, it's amazing. It's, it, it's just, just head over to Bandcamp and have, have a listen. I'll post the links about it when I do the social media posts on this podcast. And it's Ben's love of synthesizers and vintage synthesizers that put him in touch with today's guest, Dave Spears. And Dave has this incredible building um, in this beautiful location um, on the outskirts of London and in this building is every possible synthesizer it's not easy to say with a lisp that word um, vintage synthesizer so Dave explained that this one was used on this seminal album and this belonged to Depeche Mode and this was and there's stuff in there that just looks like them crazy things you see on like the back of Kraftwerk album sleeves which is just an abundance of, of wires into these huge upright wooden synthesizers it it was all there and it was it was an incredible thing to see and uh, and and Dave's insight and understanding of, of, of music's fantastic and his answers were really concise and well measured and I'm really looking forward to you listening to this podcast so thanks again for Dave to him for inviting us into his 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 beautiful studio um thanks ever so much to Ham Plaza for for putting this together please go and check that album out over at Bandcamp um thanks to 76 for producing this episode thanks to my name is Ad for doing the artwork and Thanks to everybody at the Distraction Pieces Network. Remember, there's incredible art by Paul McDonald um, on uh, Off the Beaten Track artwork that he's put together, which is absolutely amazing, hand-drawn in ink. Please go over and have a look because you can buy them on offthebeatentrackpodcast.com as you can buy T-shirts and you can find out about the Patreon account where you'll get another weekly show. It's all, all over at www.offthebeatentrackpodcast.com. I'm done talking. Let's get on with the podcast. Please enjoy Off the Beaten Track with Mr. Dave Spears. I've got an announcement. Save Our Souls Clothing. 
sosclothing.co.uk. Why am I telling you this? Because they're our official sponsor. Yeah, that's right. Go and check them out because their clothing is off the scale. You're going to love it. So they've decided they want to be our sponsor, which is amazing. And what I have to do is I have to tell you about why they're amazing. So here's a little bit of blurb. So they've only been going a year. And they're based in South End on Sea, just up the road from me. They put the company together based on a, a love of tattoos and alternative music. And they've worked with some of the greatest artists around the world to produce these items of clothing that are as unique as you lot. All of the designs are printed using biodegradable, sustainable and water-based inks. And in addition to that, they only print on garments made by members of Fairwear Foundation. I mean, come on, great clothing and a conscience. Since going live in April last year, they've seen their audience grow massively and are now selling orders all across the world. And they were recognised by Cosmopolitan magazine as one of the best sustainable clothing brands alongside names such as Stella McCartney. I mean, that's quite a first year, right? So, go and check them out because they've put a lot of love into supporting this podcast and I couldn't be happier. What else they've done is they've given you 15% off. So if you head over to www.sosclothing.co.uk, do a bit of shopping, see what you like, throw it in the basket, and then on the way out, put in the discount code BEAT15, B-E-A-T-1-5, and that'll save you 15% off. Amazing, right? www.sosclothing.co.uk official sponsors of Off The Beat and Track podcast. Let's get back to that podcast. It's Off The Beat and Track podcast on the Distraction Pieces Network. With me, Stu Whiffin. Right, it's a Thursday afternoon, the sun is shining, and, and I'm in Henley, which I've never been to before, which is a beautiful place. And I'm in the middle of nowhere, uh, there's literally a two-seater plane took off about an hour ago from the, the garden, and uh, I'm, I'm in this incredible studio, and uh, which is owned by today's guest, Mr. Dave Spears. Hello. You right? Yeah, I'm good, thank you, and you? Yeah, yeah, really good, mate. Um, thank you ever so much for inviting us into this incredible space. Uh, I've never seen anything quite like it. Um, it looks like some kind of crazy, when you see them weird photographs of like craft work like in the studio, it, 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 <laughs> it looks like that and, and throw Rick Wakeman and Yes into the mix and you've just got this abundance of, of keyboards and, and, and wires and it's, 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 it's wonderful and, uh, and I'm sure we'll, uh, we'll find out throughout the duration of this podcast how this stuff come to happen and, and, and how you're career took you into to working with such beautiful instruments so before we get on to the the, the playlist um for listeners that might not be aware of 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 who you are dave do you want to give us a, a quick insight into into what you do and then we'll 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 elaborate more throughout the duration of the chat yeah i mean my main gig is um i co-run a a music software company we're very small there's me and my partner and a few programmers and various other people 
Uh, and we've kind of deliberately kept it small, but effectively we make uh, software emulations of some of the old tat that you see in this room. So there was a kind of phase where this was all very unfashionable because it's very old analog. Uh, and in the kind of, I suppose, mid-90s, there was a resurgence everyone wanted just the sounds from their youth really I suppose and some of the a lot of these synthesizers have their own character uh, and that we were kind of lucky in that we were right at the beginning of the whole kind of software side of plug-in instruments uh, and we just had a couple of ideas and it was like well you know maybe this would work and maybe that would work and that, uh, originally it was kind of done for our own benefit uh, and then we started selling things and it's just kind of led on from there really. So a lot of what you see in here is for research, mm -hmm. um, but it's also a working studio. So we do have artists come in, uh, when we let them in, cause nine times out of 10, I want to be using it myself mostly, but yeah, so that's, yeah, that's kind of what we do. Um, it's like I say, it's just a small company, um, G4 software, uh, yeah, and that's kind of what's provided us with the opportunity, really, to acquire these things. Okay. Which has been over quite a lengthy period. Uh, and a lot of that has come from your work in w w within bands, and uh, which we, I'm sure we'll elaborate on as as, as we sort of work yeah, out. Yeah, certainly some of them have come through that route. Uh, yeah, it was a kind of weird, I don't know what it was. Uh, it was probably about 10 years ago, I saw Will Gregory down in Bath, uh, and he was performing this mono synth ensemble, which was basically eight or so players playing monophonic old analog synths and doing Bach stuff. And I remember saying to him afterwards, I thought it was amazing. It was like him, Adrian Utley, uh, this guy Django Bates, and they were, you know, some really eminent musicians. And I remember saying to him afterwards, are you going to do it, this again? Uh, and he wasn't sure at the time. And I thought at the time, in fact, I said at the time, if you're not going to do it, I'm going to nick the idea and just go around the posh festivals doing it. Yeah. And I had this idea that we could MIDI up the instruments and run some from sequences and play some stuff in live and kind of cut down on the personnel. And I think that was the start of it. And I kept saying to my business partner at the time, who runs, who takes care of money? I'm more the creative side of things. I don't, I don't like money. He does all of that. You know, can we get one of these and can we get one of those? And then at the time we were being distributed by, uh, our software products were being distributed by an American company, Avid, and we were being paid in dollars and the exchange rate was grim. So we were kind of accumulating dollars in a dollar account and living off of web sales. Uh, and we've never paid ourselves, you know, hugely at all. Um, and what we have paid has generally gone back into the business. So there was a couple of moments where we were offered some pieces of gear in America that had amazing provenance and came from amazing musicians. And these were like instruments that I dreamed of owning as a kid. Uh, and we kind of went, well, we've got a few dollars kicking around and they want to be paid in dollars. So it was just the logistics of affording it and then getting it freighted to the UK. And that was kind of the start. There were two instruments at the beginning that were kind of like, yeah, yeah. It's interesting that you say you saw a classical piece of music recreated using electronic instruments live fast forward from them 10 years ago to now and now you're seeing electronic masterpieces and people like pete tong then taking them to the albert hall and having classical interpretations of iconic dance music it is amazing 
that whole journey. And in fact, what was really amazing about that particular gig, this was part of the Bath Festival. Uh, and it was a one-off, it was really a one-off event that Will did. But Bath is populated by a load of great musicians. So the kind of Bath Muso intelligentsia were there. Is Pete Gabriel from down that way? Yeah. Is his studio there? Yeah, just outside. Yeah. Uh, and one of the people in the audience I know quite well, John Fox. Uh, and in the interval... I mean, I John Fox, he's... John Fox, he's a legend, right? He's an amazing individual. He's one of those guys that you can kind of sit and listen to all day long. He's, always, he's got a story about everything. He's a really hyper-intelligent guy. And we were just talking in the interval about it, and he said it reminded him of the whole Walter Wendy Carlos thing back in the late 60s, where they were doing Switched on Bark and all that kind of stuff. And it was like that. Right, I might be wrong here. So, could you say that name again? It was Wendy Carlos, who was originally Walter Carlos, became That's Wendy Carlos. Soundtrack to Clockwork Orange? Yes. Right, okay, yep. Yeah. Uh, and Switched On Bark was a really seminal, modular synth album where obviously they did the Bark stuff um, using synths. I mean, it was a phenomenal piece of work and still stands up today. So it's amazing, really, talking to John, because he was like, you know, it reminds me of that era. And like you say, now here we are, 15 or so years later, and we've got all these kind of techno bands doing orchestral things. It's crazy, isn't it? But it seems to run, it does seem to be fairly consistent. You know, in the past, we've worked with, worked alongside rock bands doing the kind of symphonic thing. Mm -hmm. So I think at some point, a kind of genre reaches a maturity. Yeah. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, well, maybe we can take this into the classical arena. Reinterpret it, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I find that really fascinating. Okay, well, let's start with, with track one of your, your playlist today, Dave, which is the song that has the greatest intro. <laughs> uh, it's got to be Res for me, Underworld's Res. Uh, yeah. I don't know. It just sets up. It's an ARP 2600, which is over there, and it's a thing of joy. Uh, it's been Rick Smith's kind of instrument of choice for a million years. He knows it inside out. He just set up this patch on it where it just plays with those kind of resonant harmonics. And, yeah, as an intro, it just, you know what you're going to get. Mm -hmm. It's just that thing. And live, when they play that live, there's this, in fact, there's two tracks, really, but that and Born Slippy. The audience know exactly what's happening from what's going to happen from the from the moment of that intro. So for me, it's like that's a punch the air moment for me. And it's it's weird as a DJ. We we, we spoke earlier um, uh, uh, about uh, the, 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 the the sort of I mean I mean let, let, let's just go back to the intro actually. And I don't think we we, we sorry to, to go back to what we spoke about earlier. We, we was talking about um, how. Electronic music crossed over into the, the more alternative, more guitar scenes, and and I think none more so than probably Born Slippy. Um, that that transcended from dance clubs to festivals to rock clubs, and and t still to this day, I play that record when I DJ, and just them opening bars. <laughs> I'm, I'm seeing 18 year old kids now. However many years later, I don't want to think how old they see. It's going to make me feel old, <laughs> but it's hands in the air. It's pure euphoric. It's it, it's beautiful, and so what? I mean, you, you've worked with Underworld um, for, for for many years. Is that right? Yeah, very much on and off. Um, 
Carl Hyde and I met on a Debbie Harry tour back in 1991 and we just kind of clicked, we just got on, we are both born on the same day, 10th of May, different years, uh, yeah and we just got on. And what was you and Carl doing for Debbie Harry at that point? Carl was a guitarist uh, and an amazing guitarist actually, I didn't realise quite what a phenomenal, I, I, I kind of started the Debbie tour, when we started rehearsals I was a bit fearful that it was going to be a kind of cabaret type thing. And what was you doing, Dave? I was keyboard tech, really. Mm -hmm. um, so we'd kind of taken a lot of the original sounds. I mean, it's a weird tour, this. And if you look at history, it almost doesn't exist because it wasn't Blondie. It was to publicise or promote an, an album which was the best of Deborah Harry. So it was actually the Deborah Harry tour. It wasn't a Blondie tour. And it's kind of been airbrushed from history, but it was a it was an amazing tour. She was utterly amazing. But I did have reservations at the beginning. I thought, you know, like I say, I thought it was going to be a bit of a cabaret event. Uh, that was playing Blondie Records as well? Yeah, it was all the kind of hits, you know, to promote the best of Deborah Harry and stuff. And I was like, oh. but Carl just, from the first gig, rehearsals went great. When Carl played Rapture, that's when I realised he was a phenomenal guitarist. Uh, just doing all that kind of funk stuff was amazing. And then the first gig, literally the curtain went up and Carl just went into performer mode. He was running around like a lunatic. And he, him and Debbie made that a proper show. And it took it completely out of that kind of cabaret fear that I had and turned it into a proper... And Debbie was, a, you know, she's a proper old school rocker. And the dynamism between the two of them was, was just amazing. And in fact, it's no one knew what he was going to do, jumping around on the right. I just think what he does with Underworld, but it was kind of multiplied by three because he was a bit younger. Uh, he's jumping on the riser. I mean, the band had kind of looking around and their jaws had hit the floor. But it really, it just put the whole gig up a level for me. Uh, and that was it. You know, it was, it was a brilliant tour. It wasn't without its difficulties, but it was a brilliant tour. And... Him and I kept talking about dance music. I was quite heavily involved in sort of various funk bands at the time. What, what, when's this? Early 90s? This is 91. Okay. Uh, and he'd mentioned that he'd had this band. In fact, we used to have this little bit of a wind-up on the crew in that we'd find a really obscure track that one of the band had performed on. And we'd play it as the walking on music. And... The more absurd the track, the funnier it was. And it was always a surprise for them every night. And I found Freur's Doot Doot in a bargain bin in a store, which was the very early incarnation of Underworld. And Carl found it funny and laughed and whatnot. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did not know that. Yeah. So they, yeah, they were Freur for a long time and uh, that ended in tears. Uh, and then they kind of resurrected themselves as Underworld Mark One, which was a kind of bigger band and more rockist. And then Underworld Mark Two was really where Darren Emerson came in and kind of re, you know, restructured things for them. You know, kind of took them into the whole kind of dance arena. Um, yeah. So afterwards, we kind of got together. In fact, they invited me down to Nomis to kind of jam in inverted commas, and I walked in, and I was very anti the four to the floor nonsense at the beginning. Uh, and then, yeah, when Dub No Bass came out, it was just like, oh, wow, wow. And I was really fortunate in that I got, because I knew them, 
I got the first ever, I did the first ever magazine interview that they did in Future Music. And rather than do the kind of usual journalist thing where you get 10 minutes to go in and ask your questions and then bugger off, uh, I basically just spent the day in the studio just asking stuff. And uh, that was great because that gave me, I just started a very fledgling software company at the time. Uh, and I was skint and bailiffs were turning up and looking at my CD collection thinking, right, that's worth X amount. We'll have that against the council tax or poll tax or whatever it was. Uh, but that got me into writing for magazines, and which is kind of what kept me alive for a little while, while we got the, this was a previous software company, while we kind of got that up and running. So I've always been hugely appreciative of that. And that really came through my association with Rick and Carl. Because you're obviously, rather than you say getting them 10 minutes where, tell us about the album, tell us about this, you're getting the day in the studio with your friends, getting really measured answers, and, and obviously something way more in depth than, you're going to get in one of these little bite-sized snippets that you're going to get with the band. Yeah, and it was really kind of them to do that because after, you know, Fur hadn't ended well and Underworld Mark One, I, I don't think it ended particularly well. Once they'd kind of got their second coming, so to, or third coming, so to speak, they were very nervous about a backlash, a press backlash. Understandably. Which is why they didn't want to do the usual kind of promo sure. rounds. I mean, obviously that changed later on, but for years they were very guarded. So I was really appreciative that they kind of gave me that time. And and they've just become mates over the years. And I think it's really important as well. This is kind of how I use it. So they'll have issues or they'll want a sound designed or they'll want a sound recreated from an old album. And, that, you know, they'll call me fairly randomly and go, can you get up and... Can we talk about this and can we talk about that? Or maybe, you know, techie stuff. Uh, and it's really important for me. You know, software development's kind of very tunnel vision. The blinkers are on and you kind of remove all distractions. So it became really important to me to go up there. They are two of the most inspiring individuals I've probably ever met. Every time I'd go up there, I'd come away going, wow, wow, stimulated by something they were doing or people they were working with or things they were into at that time. It's incredible when you spend time with people like that, and it? He's so inspiring. Yeah, yeah. I mean, massively so. So it became really important to me to kind of maintain that connection. And essentially when they kind of went, can you do this? I'd always go, yeah, yeah. Because it gave me an opportunity to step outside. And actually in a lot of cases, I'd come back to the software side of things and say to my business partner, you know what we could have really used with today or what we could have done with today was a, uh, and then he'd do some fag packet arithmetics and go, well, we could probably do that. You know, it cost us this to make and whatnot. So, yeah, they've been hugely, hugely inspirational over the years. And also because they've been through, you know, quite a few dramas, certainly the first thing and the Underworld Mark One thing, and they've always behaved really ethically. So whenever we've had a difficult business decision to make or whenever we've, you know, been in a tight spot, they're definitely people that I go, what would they do? And actually, I'm lucky enough that I can call, you know, Carl in particular and go, what would you do in a circumstance like this? And I know I'm going to get a balanced answer uh, that's kind of ethically driven. Yeah. It's not all about money. Yeah. Perfect. Absolutely lovely. Okay, well, if we move forward to track two, Dave, it's the first song that you remember hearing 
that had an emotional impact on you? It's kind of strange, that one. Again, I was you've, sort of... You've, you've put a couple in, so you can have an honourable mention as well, mate. Well, I was kind of conflicted because I was originally a drummer and I grew up in the kind of, you know, early 70s and that whole glam rock scene usually had two drummers. It was really powerful and it was quite visceral and I, that's definitely what made me want to be a drummer or want to try mm. being a drummer. Uh, so that was a kind of more visceral side of things. But in terms of, I noticed the question was slightly loaded emotionally. In terms of emotional stuff, uh, it was, I think it was undoubtedly um, Sunshine of My Life. You are the Sunshine of My Life, Stevie Wonder. I just remember hearing it on the radio and all the vocal ad-libs and his tone and the combination of those instruments, you know, the the big Moog modular, the Tonto massive modular and the roads and all of those things. But it definitely, yeah, the hairs on my neck stood up. And I think that was predominantly because of the vocals. I love that ad lib. I didn't know that this was kind of soul music at the time. But I was like, I want to I want to know more about that yeah. stuff. Where does that come from? And but the fact that the, the hairs on the neck go up, surely that's soul music defined in that simplicity, right? That it connected and resonated and yeah, totally. emotions hit straight away. So yeah. that, that, that's, that's surely, you know, I don't necessarily think, you know, it has to be what's deemed in the, you know, the genre soul music to, to have that. I think soul music can take that form in, in any genre. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? If, yeah. it, if it speaks to you and you connect with you like that and it's, it's made with, with honest soul, then that's soul music. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Totally. No, I mean, I, as a result of that, I bought the album, which were really expensive albums, were so expensive back then. But somehow I managed to cobble enough money together to buy a talking book. And then that just got played over and over and over again. And that was like, you know, what are the instruments that m are making these sounds? What's this kind of synthetic? It felt so warm and organic and yet utterly soulful. It was an amazing album. That, that, that's, that's interesting you say that. Because like, I'm. How old was you then, Dave? Do you know, I was probably like 11 or something. But you was already deconstructing it and thinking, what makes that noise? And w w was you questioning it already? Oh, totally. In fact, when we talk about, you know, the first record I bought, I bought it because it sounded, I want, uh, it sounded like a synthesizer. And these things were new. And, you know, I'd kind of seen a few people wrestling with them, you know, TV. I mean, we only had three channels of TV back then and stuff. So you kind of had to do your own research. And this was like, what is this? What, how does this thing make so many different sounds? And how, do, how are these sounds, you know, all individually so amazing? And then you've just got this amazing vocalist over the top, you know, particularly with Stevie. It's just like, and these songs. I mean, yeah. Sunshine of My Life, it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a, I don't know, it's almost like a crass song really. But for the time it was... It just seemed like a proper song, you know, better than the Brotherhood of Man and anything else that was going on. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's really interesting you say that because when I ask this question, um, I, I will generally ask the, the, the guests where they were born and was their music on at home growing up. And, and I wasn't lucky to have Stevie Wonder. I had Brotherhood of Man uh, <laughs> on my parents' stereo growing up. Um, where, where was you born, Dave? Uh, I was born in Reading, in Berkshire. Uh, I kind of grew up just outside of here, really, Henley, uh, in a little village. 
that was kind of my formative years. We lived in Henley for a while above a above a shop in a little flat and then we kind of moved out to this kind of one of those seminal 70s new build council estate uh, not council estates you know kind of estates um where everybody was aspiring middle class and it was it was pretty it was an amazing place to grow up in because mm. obviously you're in an estate it's quite enclosed you've got loads of mates you can cycle around. i mean we were out from dawn till dusk on our bikes exploring stuff i often think now you know kids a lot of kids don't have that because everyone's freaking out about you know well there might be a paedophile around the corner and i'm sure there were plenty back then but we had absolute run of everywhere yeah. it was amazing it was an amazing time and then there was all this music going on you know? so there was music on at home yeah yeah my folks had always uh yeah my mum was into the stones and beatles and stuff but that was her generation's music as far as i was concerned was you kicking against that to a degree then I don't know as whether I was kind of willingly doing that. You know, I was into the pop music stuff, the old T-Rex stuff, Slade stuff. Uh, can we even mention Gary Glitter's name? But it certainly was into his music at the time. Um, which is amazing now, because at the time, you know, it kind of meant something to me. But now you look back and it was a kind of Chin and Chapman manufacturing production line in the same way that people, you know, snarled over Stock Aitken and Waterman. That's yeah. really what was going Even Motown to a degree. Yeah, of course. You know, the hit factory thing. So I think each generation has that. And it's strange because I, when I was, I had Alan McGee on the, on the podcast and I was chatting to him and, and he spoke so fondly about glam and, and saying, um, you know, everybody does talk about Bobby, but it was T-Rex for him. And, and it's quite strange because as, as someone who's a, li a little younger, you know, my, my knowledge of growing up with, with T-Rex and Bowie, by then they were, you know, you look back at that stuff and they were pioneers. But at the time, as much as it was pioneering as, as we look back, at the time, like T-Rex, it was pop music, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah. That, that was what was top of the charts. Yeah. That was, you know, that I guess that was the, 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 the commercial pop music of its day, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Bowie was about the most out there you could get at that time. But I like the, I don't know, at the time, you know, people forget this, but the UK was a pretty grey dull place in mm. the 70s and glam sort of offered this sort of escapism people started dressing differently and colorfully and it felt and like it added color glam didn't it yeah 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 totally and then when you you know by the time you get to kind of roxy and brian eno and all that kind of stuff you know that whole i remember my granddad being so uncomfortable you know watching top of the pops watching these people with makeup and stuff on Whereas for us, it was like, yeah, brilliant, it's man. It's a guy with eyeliner and all this kind of stuff. It's such a weird feeling, isn't it? That, that, that I mean, I'm probably guilty of doing it with my children now. But I remember <laughs> like watching Top of the Pops when I was a kid and seeing whether it was like, I don't know, but Boy George being a prime example, seeing Culture Club and, 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 and Frankie as well. Yeah, and and yeah. seeing like Frankie looked scary it was intimidating and the sam was was abrasive and 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 i was like whoa what's this and and the same with we've seen culture club and and it's hilarious now when you look at it but you know it was literally in the papers is it a boy or is it a girl yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, i mean yeah. it's, it's laughable now <laughs> but i remember like watching that and like and my parents just going oh, what's all this crap and it was like yeah, but and i remember feeling a bit uncomfortable just thinking like, I'm really drawn to it. I want to know more about it. I'm not that interested about the, the glossy pop stars. I, I want, I like the kind of the slightly more twisted stuff. And I think, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
I think as a as a person, you 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 do make that choice at some point in your life to kind of think. I'm a little bit more interested to the stuff that's going on over there on the left. It seems to be a little bit more quirky, interesting, artistic, rather than the more mainstream. And and, and I think that's that's something that whether you found that with T-Rex and 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 Slade and and you know and moving it forward to for me things like Depeche Mode and 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 Frankie and stuff like that. I think that's something that that starts a path. I really do. I think one of the things I loved about that time you know everything was very good look you had a job for life if you left school with the right qualifications and stockbrokers wore bowler hats and uh pinstripe suits and stuff and then all of a sudden this thing came along and it was just like wow this is really different and then what i loved is how that translated to the kind of rebels at school who would start to emulate the dress sense and there was this definitely this kind of kicking against the machine but also during that era you know, the UK was pretty violent. I mean, particularly small towns. And this would have been around the time of Enoch Powell and stuff like that, wouldn't it? If I'm if I'm correct, would that have been in the time of Enoch Powell and the Rivers of Blood? And yeah, the, and yeah, the, I know, guess the, so. The, the, I mean, there was a lot of boot boys front. around. Yeah, 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 the National Front thing was around. I mean, that was a, yeah, that's a whole different story. I mean, I was very active in the whole Rock Against Racism thing, but um, you know, it was vi- it was quite vi- you'd go out on a Saturday night, and if you didn't get it, if you didn't get into a punch-up, it was a kind of novelty. Um, I mean, that's a bad time if you feel short-changed. You didn't get beaten up on a night. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. I was watching that catastrophe the other night, and she says something about somebody got some glass in their leg. And she says, yeah, but it was London on a Saturday night. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> I loved it. And that, that kind of took me back. But the, the glam thing offered this sort of alternative to that kind of constant fighting all the time. And then there seems to be a kind of group of people who sort of were just different, were just into the music and the scene, really, I suppose. And that also translated through, you know, like you were saying about Culture Club and stuff. In fact, it's brilliant because here, small town, you know, there's a couple of hard-armed families who everybody was intimidated by. And one of the relations of the hard-armed family, he started dressing as Boy George. Amazing. And I was just like, you know, the dad must have been utterly mortified, <laughs> you know. I'm going to kick him out of the house and all this kind of stuff. Oh, but I, for me, that was kind of bravery. It was just balls Absolutely. Of which I loved. So you mentioned uh, school and stuff uh, a moment ago. So for, for, for track three, I'm going to ask you what the track is that reminds you of your time at school. It, uh, yeah, it's it's really anything part of that Stevie Wonder. It's probably songs in the key of life. Uh, what an incredible! Which album. isn't a song, but it's yeah the album. I mean, um, God damn, what's the track about his daughter? Isn't she lovely? Mm. And I also found this really fascinating: is that we all heard that track, we all thought it sounded amazing. He wouldn't release it as a single because he was afraid that it would impact on sales of the album, which was a double album. Was that never a single? Nope. No way. And somebody else did it, a guy called David Parton or somebody. He did a version of it, which was the only way you could kind of buy it as a single. Now, Stevie's Songs in the Key of Life was a double album with a with an additional um, uh, single in there, uh, which I think had four tracks on it. That was totally beyond my financial ability to buy that uh in fact i got it i ended up getting that album 
I went on a French exchange trip with school and I ended up being exchanged with, uh, I ended up living with this family, uh, the father of which was uh, one of the Vietnamese boat children. Wow. Who was supremely cool, had a Capri three litre and Didn't get any cooler than that at that time, did it? He taught me how to play ping pong, you know, proper Vietnamese style, which is brutal. And I'm still a bit shit hot at that now as a result. But he had a quadraphonic sound system in his uh, living room. And he had songs in the key of life. And I just didn't go out to any parties. I just played that album over and over and over and over and over. And in fact, right at the very end of the exchange, uh, he gift-wrapped it and handed it to me and said, I think you need this more than me. Amazing. And that was just like, wow. And that album is like a really, really special treasured album. And also it kind of, it catalogues of, you know, a couple of girlfriends from that era. And and the optimism of that era as well, you know, things like Sir Duke. As soon as you, in fact, I was talking to my business partner yesterday and I was asking him the same questions and his were very different. But he said he thought the greatest intro was the beginning of Sir Duke. Great show. He said it just sets up, again, sets up what's coming. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. So for me, that album, I mean, I can listen to If It's Magic and Well Up. Uh, as and another star, just it was an amazing album. It's, it's it's so amazing when a piece of music can create that emotional response, isn't it? It's, it's I think what I find really amazing is um, so I stored all my albums in the loft, and recently I kind of dug a few out, and and that one in particular, and the vinyl's got a smell to it. And that, just that smell transported me back to, you know, that 1976. That's wonderful. Which is bizarre. Yeah. But there's something, re- yeah, really visceral about it. How was school? Did you enjoy it? I did enjoy it. I wasn't a role model pupil by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, in fact, I've just done, a, I've done my own album, which is about growing up or not growing up in the late 60s and 70s. Because there were a multitude of musical styles. And it started for me to be a kind of challenge as to, well, could I do a respectable version of glam? Could I do a respectable prog track? And could I do a respectable soul track and whatnot? The thing is, is because I work with other artists, I kind of have to fit what they require of me at that particular time. So I was always, you know, I'm a reasonable musician, but I'd always, I don't think I'd ever really found my own voice uh, and my own style because I'd always kind of had to adapt to suit the needs of other artists and I found my dad I came to visit my dad one day and he was looking at a load of old cine footage and I was mesmerised but he always had a cine camera when he was younger and you know it was embarrassing for us as kids you know put the camera away dad no don't point it at me again dad but watching this stuff kind of you know 30 40 years later was just like wow no cars in the streets yeah uh that I set my video camera up and just recorded it all off the wall. And then I went home and replayed it. And I just wrote this track, uh, which was really about moving to that housing estate from a very cold flat with no central heating to, you know, central heating and a load of mates and freedom. Uh, And I played it to my business partner, who's exactly the same age as me. And he just went, you need to do this. You need to do an album based around this whole concept. So it's taken a long time, but I've I've recently just finished it, although it's never really finished. But I decided to commit. 
so yeah, that covers a multitude of styles. Anyway, that's not a plug for me album. But you was kind enough to to to, to show us this when we <laughs> arrived, and and to, to and it seems fitting now whilst talking about school on the inlay. You've you've used loads of snippets of your school reports that were less than glowing. <laughs> yeah, they really were. Uh, yes, yeah. Uh, my 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 dad's a proper hoarder. So he'd kept school books and school reports and things like that. I think the idea was, was was that when I had kids, he would, and they were giving me jip, he would produce the school report and go, well, your dad, you know, your dad was no angel. Uh, but thankfully, my daughter's been a straight A student, so that opportunity never arose. But then I started rereading them myself. And yeah, there was a certain amount of amusement because I was a lippy little bugger. Uh, one of the reports said, Dave is popular in class, but for all the wrong reasons. <laughs> Adept at a funny remark at precisely the wrong moment. And I think that kind of sums up everything with me, really. That's great to have on the CV, that is. Yeah. Plus, you know, when I work with uh, other software companies, particularly American companies, they're always going, so what did you major in? And I was like, dude, you know, back then, yeah. people like me didn't go to university. Yeah. We just came out and got a job. Yeah. That was it. Okay, um, so around this time at school and your, and your love of music, I know you said you was gifted the, the Stevie Wonder album, but I'm going to ask you now for the next track, what the first record you actually went out with your own pennies and, and, and bought? Yeah, I mean, it's funny. The Bonzo Dog Doodah Band, I'm the Urban Spaceman, and that'll, that'll age me. I, I mean, that's an incredible name for a band and track. Yes, yes, they were... Yeah, quite phenomenal. In fact, I was lucky to bump into Viv Stanshaw. Really? Well, George Harrison lived in Henley. In fact, the family still live there. and That mm. was his studio, and that's where... Um, I can't remember what he called it. It had a name, his studio. Um, it was something like Futtock's End, but it wasn't that. Um, but people like Stanshaw and Tom Petty and Phil Linnett and stuff used to go and record, and you'd kind of see him in the pub and... Uh, you know, George used to pop into the pub occasionally. I mean, that's quite surreal to the person on the street, isn't it? You'd go for a pint and there's a beetle having a pint. Yeah, it was weird because I never really saw it as anything amazing at the time because that was my mum's generation, yeah. you know. But actually, over time, you kind of go, wow, mm. wow. And I mean, his place is just unbelievable. I've got pictures of the studio and stuff and it's just like, wow, wow. And he probably wasn't struggling with a mortgage, was he? He must have no, done. No, he right. definitely wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> he definitely wasn't. But he, you know, he was. He was quite. He was very cool. A bit of an altruist. He used to fund a lot of local projects and stuff. And funded Life of Brian, didn't he? Yeah. And I think, in a way, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I can't speak for him at all, but all the family. But I think, in a way, you know, look, there's a lot of rock stars who live around here. This is this is like the place that rock stars come when they make a little bit of money when they've lived in West London. Whereas people who lived in Essex generally move up to sort of Saffron Walden way. This is the kind of Saffron Walden equivalent of there. Brilliant. Um, but obviously, so there's a pecking order. You know, there's a guy from Jeff Tull over there and there's a bloke from Deep Purple up there and there's a, but king of the heap was obviously George. Yeah. 
uh, and his wife Olivia is a really sweet person, and she's obviously she was obviously Queen Bee, but they never courted any publicity. But I always kind of felt a little bit sorry for them because if ever there was a local cause, you know, like I don't know, the roof needed sorting on the church, they were always the first. Oh, George has got a load of money. Let's yeah. just go and be- get the begging bowl out for George, and that must have just become so tedious over time. So to go back to Bonzo Dog, dude, our band. Yeah. Um, can you remember where you bought it? Uh, oh God, I can picture the shop, but I can't remember the name of it. My mum will know. I think she gave me the money to go and buy it. I remember her giving me the money and then me walking along to the store and picking it up. You see, I wanted it because, and I didn't know this for for years, but it had one, It to me, it sounded like it had one of those newfangled instruments that I was kind of obs- getting obsessed about. What is this instrument? It makes that sound. I later discovered it was a flute double-tracked, but it's the main riff in mm. Urban Spaceman. But then on the flip side was this thing called the Canyons of My Mind, which was like this mostly... It was like... It was a comedy. Mm. It was a total comedy record. But it was quite warped. And I really loved that... Uh, both of those tracks for me. But Urban Spaceman be- it was really because of that melody, mm. because of that riff. In fact, again, I asked my business partner the same question yesterday, and his answer was, David Essex is going to make you a star mm-hmm. for exactly the same reasons that synth riff on there, which I only discovered what made, what instrument was used to play that synth riff on David Essex track it's when I did Bright Sparks. It's but crazy, isn't it? How... Uh, all of these things can be traced back to you kind of being quizzical about sounds that may have been slightly otherworldly. Yeah, I think it's a sound that you make a connection with somehow, and, and it is an emotional thing. And that's why that's what's really interesting about particularly some of these pieces of kit. You know, when you talk about the Moog Modular and the Mini Moog, you make a connection with those instruments. You can almost feel when you're playing it, you can almost feel the electrons pulsing through it. There's something about it. And I think, yeah, I, somehow that seems to be embedded in my psyche from probably day one. Okay. So let's move on then. And uh, I'm very interested to, to, to know about. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. 
They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This one. Um, I ask guests to um, choose the, the song that soundtrack their time clubbing. Oh, man, yeah. Back to life. Soul to song. That groove just permeated through every song, didn't it, throughout that period. But there was some... My, my life wasn't in the best places in 1989 uh, for various reasons. And yeah, that, that song, whenever that kicked in and whenever that groove kicked in, it was optimistic. Yeah. It was just optimistic. Uh, so yeah, Jesus, I'm getting emotional even thinking about it now because yeah, it was a difficult time. I had a conversation with another musician the other day and I was like, you know, it was a really optimistic time between, I think, 89 and kind of 91. Uh, we had people like Karen Wheeler come out, UK Black album and stuff like that. It was all really optimistic and vibey and we were kind of asking each other, so what went wrong? His answer was Americans. <laughs> <laughs> and probably hip-hop, but I don't know. Um, but yeah, for me, that it was it was everywhere. It was omnipresent in every club. Um, I was playing in a soul band. This is slightly a side story, but in fact, Ben will like this story. Um, I should was point out that this podcast was put together by a mutual friend of ours, Ben. Uh, yeah. Who's, 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 who's cowering in the corner of the room behind us. Well, he'll, he'll like this story. Um, I was playing in a soul band at the time. It was quite a big soul band. Um, but at the time, it was hard to get gigs for a band like that because everyone wanted a DJ. You know, DJs were really rising through the ranks. And we were kind of snobby musos going, well, yeah, but they don't actually play anything, do they? They just play other people's stuff. And we did a gig at Chelsea Art College. I think it was like their end of year ball thing. And for some reason, they kind of messed up the... You had to pay to get into the bar area, which was in the hall where we were playing. So a load of people were in there because they wanted the bar. They didn't particularly want to listen to us. And... Uh, Somebody walked up, we were playing anyway, and somebody walked up on stage from the audience and took the mic out of the singer's hand and started chanting to the audience, band of shit, band of shit, put a fucking sock in it. And the audience started chanting this. And we'd already been paid, so I was kind of trying to be philosophical about it. Well, let's just, <laughs> let's just bugger off. The, my, the bass player, who's now my brother-in-law, uh, who's a phenomenal bass player, um, he was really angry about it and I was trying to calm him down. But as we left the stage, the track that, start, that the DJ started up was Tom's Diner, which had exactly the same groove. And then fast forward, weirdly enough, to just after that uh, Will Gregory gig, uh, I'm at the bar with somebody who I'd become acquainted through, through the kind of software instrument side of things and the music tech side of things. And my wife says to him, so what do you do, Nick Bat?" And he said, well, I've got this company called Sonic State, and blah, 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 and I kind of work with various bands, Goldfrapp and stuff like that, kind of a bit like Dave and various bands. And uh, I also had this kind of pop career at some point, which obviously didn't last very long. And she says, oh, anything of any note? And he said, oh, yeah, yeah, I was, it was a band called DNA. We did Tom's Diner. What's the first thing that came into your mind? Band of shit, band of shit. <laughs> I told him the story immediately. <laughs> I was like, dude. And I had to shake his hand and tell him the story. And it was really funny because he was going, oh, I'm really sorry about that. And I'm like, well, yeah, if I was being an arsehole, I'd say so you should be. But 
it was part and parcel of that same groove. That loop just permeated everything. Whereas what I loved about the soul soul thing, it was it was optimistic. What's the phrase? Uh, pumping bass for a loving race. I mean, and Jazzy was a kind of figurehead, and and they were about self empowerment. And he had his clothesline. Everything. They, know, they, they, was, they had their shop in London. You could yep. go and buy the 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 t-shirts with the, the the funky dread on it. Did you see the documentary on BBC Four about a year ago on on Jazzy B and yeah. Harry? When you said earlier about you found that really inspiring, speaking to to Carl and stuff like that, I stopped when I got to the end of that documentary. I phoned my mate up and I went, oh, "Mate, I, I, I'm so fired up and inspired by." watching this doc I said go and watch it it's incredible what Jazzy B done and Harry set that up through the through having a market stall to then into the clubs and then to because to, he wasn't a producer as such was he I, he literally learned as he went and and that beat and that and it's for those that weren't about at that point it wasn't just in the clubs. You could not move. Every car was blaring that beat out. You could not move for it. It was such a massive thing. And she's so underrated. Karen Wheeler's voice yep. is off the scale. Yeah, totally. Totally. And, and the, the other singer was um, that, that oh, sang on the, yeah, the, the track before that was, um, oh, God, what was her name? Uh, oh damn it her voice is incredible as well uh, Rose Windross yes like what yes. a vocal she had as well yeah I had a few singles from her Living Life Your Own Way and all that kind mm. of stuff I just I was so immersed in that scene you know I was hanging out in West London at the time before Notting Hill became stupidly obscenely expensive um, and the street that my mates lived in it was like Sesame Street so everyone was kind of sitting out on the steps. We had West Indian fruit and veg underneath the flat. And, you know, it was really vibrant and just positive. Everything, it just, it was all positive. And it blew me away. And and what I, and you saying about the cars is really fascinating because you're absolutely right. Everyone had a top sound system in their cars. But it seemed to be an extension of that whole sound system that, guys I knew in kind of council flats in Hackney had these huge mongers and, you know, and they were doing all the kind of ragger and um, reggae stuff. But this was just so accessible. Yeah. Everybody I knew was into that. And when that album came out, I mean, a new decade as well. It was a kind of fresh start, particularly for me, and life not being in an amazing place. It was just like, yeah, yeah, this is everything that I want yeah. out of the future. It was amazing. It was so... What's the buzzword now that everybody uses? Inclusive. Yeah. And that's what it was. It was positive yeah. and inclusive. It was definitely something that it, it, it was uniting. It was like everybody, whatever music you was into, soul to soul, cut through everything. It was it was just something that I think couldn't be ignored. It was so positive and it was so... The, the rhythms were just absolutely perfect you could yeah. not when that comes on you can't not nod your head nope. it's there nope. even right. those of us who couldn't dance we still dance <laughs> <laughs> we gave it a go the like thing that, that jumped out at me about that documentary that I thought was really interesting was when he was talking about some of the parties they were having in the arches some of the illegal ones and they were saying that um, their mate um, 
Jules was on the door because he was studying law, and so he'd be the guy that would would tell the police like it was all right, it was this, and you know he, he knew his little bit of, of of his way around a law book, and that's how he got the name Judge Jules. And I was like, I had no that idea about that. Brilliant. It was amazing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, and that whole area was amazing. I mean, we used to even in the soul band, we used to play at a place called Subterranea, which was under the yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was, again, such a vibey club. I mean, we played there a few times. I remember coming off stage the last time and saying to bass player, who's now my brother-in-law, uh, I want to do this again. And, and he just turned around to me and he said, we played out of this place. It's got to be bigger. And the band didn't go on to bigger and better things. It was an odd scene. You know, it was around the time of Fine Young Cannibals. And labels didn't really know how to, how to fit a band like that in their kind of roster. And in fact, one of the label said we've already got a fine young cannibals but it was that kind of thing we had like people out of Sade's band and go west and stuff like that it was a really really vibey band and of course it's i've often thought about that because my brother-in-law uh went on to be amy winehouse's musical director and bass player for years so he definitely did play out of that place wow and did do bigger and better things and still does and to, to talk about sort of soul acts from that time I watched a documentary the other week again on, on, on BBC4 uh, and they were talking about Terence Trent Derby and uh, uh, and they were saying like I think he was was it Martin Ware produced um, oh okay I, I believe it was wow correct me if I'm wrong tweeting um, but he was saying like the f one of the first sort of fully formed pop stars you could ever meet had a voice that was off the scale, was a beautiful human being, and could dance. He, he, he could do everything, and 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 it was really weird. I was, I was chatting to someone yesterday, and they were sort of saying there's these rumours that that the, the, the label's kind of with the second album, he he it was a meteoric drop from was, the, yeah. the success of introducing the hardline, and and there's arguments saying that that you know the the industry were like, look, there's not enough room for for another solo black artists that can sing and dance like that we've got Prince we've got Michael Jackson maybe we need to sideline this dude I you mean, see you know, and that's fascinating because conspiracies I'll, are always fun to chat about whether that, you know how much truth's in that I don't know yeah no it would be interesting to explore that more but it's funny you say about Prince and stuff because I always saw Terence as the kind of UK as the potential UK version of Prince. It was like one of those guys for a, a one moment in time had absolutely everything going for him. Completely. Like you say, dance, sing, songs were great, production was great, it was really vibey. And then, yeah, he just kind of dropped off. I did hear a few rumours, but I, I, like, I won't even quote any of them because they're probably completely unsubstantiated. But it's odd. You know, that, 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 that did happen on this kind of soul scene quite a lot. You know, you get bands who were kind of like, look, when I was doing the early kind of funk drumming stuff, you know, um, Incognito and Lynx and all of those guys were were the kind of gods of our little world. Uh, and then all of a sudden, you know, a couple of years later, they, can't, they couldn't even get arrested. And it's amazing now to see David Grant do the kind of, um, the vocal tuition yeah, stuff. Yeah, that's right. I've always wondered what had happened to sketch his old partner and stuff in fact somebody said he was working in a garage or something or maybe that was beforehand and in fact i bumped into a there was a guitarist i knew back in the day a guy called jj bell and he did all the link stuff and so when my life 
wasn't going according to plan. You know, I'd open up albums and stuff and I'd see JJ Bell's name constantly on Frankie stuff and yeah. um, Pet Shop Boys and all manner of stuff. Uh, and then I bumped into him at uh, one of the trade shows we do, kind of, you know, like 20 years after I'd kind of first met him. And that was amazing. We got together and I said, you have no idea how much I hated you because like my life was in the toilet and yeah, I'm seeing your name on like Frankie <laughs> stuff and Slave to the Rhythm and stuff. And he told wow. me an amazing story about how the Slave to the Rhythm thing came about for him. Uh, but yeah, phenomenal. Unfortunately, he's not with us anymore. He never ate any vegetables, did JJ. So there's a lesson for anyone out there. Eat vegetables. Eat your veg, kids. <laughs> um, it's really weird. You took about them early sort of soul bands that, that on, the, on the British scene and and uh, it was when I was very, very young, and I, I remember one of the first albums I owned, there was um, a Galaxy track on there, Dancing Tight. And uh, and then I remember, because it was Phil Fearon, wasn't it? Yeah. And, and I remember he had this track called What Do I Do If I Want to Get Close to You or whatever. Yeah. Uh, I can't remember what the actual track was called, something like that. And... Uh, and go, go back a few years, I was, I was putting on a retro event, like a kind of sort of uh, 89, 90 sort of dance event, and I booked Baby D to do a, 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 a PA of Let Me Be Your Fantasy and stuff. When she's turned up, she's turned up with this guy, and I was looking at him, and I was thinking, I think that's Phil Fearon. Wow. And I was like, hello, I'm, I'm still and he went, oh, hi, I'm Phil. I went, oh, bloody knew it. I went, you're Phil Fearon, aren't you? And he was like, yeah. So he's married to Baby D, and if you watch, because I've then gone back like the nerd I am, watching Phil Fearon on Top of the Pops in the early 80s, he's backing singer. He's like an 18-year-old baby D. <laughs> How amazing. <laughs> They're the sort of YouTube rabbit holes I lose myself in when yes. I've got too much yeah, time yeah, on yeah, my yeah. hands. <laughs> the trivial pursuit thing. But it's interesting, again, because, you know, with the glam stuff, there were discos and people went out. And then there was this whole period where... People just didn't go out. Mm. And then you had the kind of disco thing that happened and people went out. People mm. went to clubs. And then there was this whole period where no one went to clubs. Yeah. And then that only really kind of re-emerged in the late 80s with the kind of soul to soul thing. And mm. obviously the rave thing took over then. But there were these kind of periods where nobody went out. Yeah. And I think that's probably what manifested the kind of violent tendencies in town because the only place to go was the pub yeah. where people would just get pissed and then yeah. never go at somebody down the, you know, across the bar because they were looking at them in yeah. a funny manner. Whereas the club scene was... An outlet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and people were generally pretty friendly. And it's weird because when you look at that, maybe that mid to that, that mid eighties, you know, you go back and and the early eighties, you had the new romantic scene and stuff like that. But you also, I mean, coming from Essex, there was there was a jazz funk scene and uh, you know Chris Hill at the Gold Mining Cam, V oh, and Lacey man, Lady, yeah. Lacey and Lady. you know that was huge, huge scene, and 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 that was let's all go to this club, let's all go to this club, and then there does seem to be a bit of a sort of grey area in you know when you watch the documentaries about club culture sort of post that pre you know the the the, the parties that you know the like soul to soul were doing and, and then obviously the illegal raves and then i think club culture then is well documented boomed in you know after the the justice act coming shut down them raves you know put a stop to people enjoying themselves yeah. and was like right and that generally pushed through i guess what become the super clubs and yeah you know, to try and recreate them, them atmospheres of of, of, the, of the big raves. Let's try and put a roof over it, license it, and 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 make money out of it. Yeah, yeah, cream and shoe and yeah, 
all of that kind of scene. In fact, there's a there is a, I don't know whether you've seen it. There's I think it's a three part documentary on the whole yeah. Clubland thing. Yeah. I Mark Moore's on it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought that was really brilliant. I mean, they did gloss over things, but it's so funny because I was watching that and you said about the lacy lady. I mean, that was kind of like the place to be. And I remember going to. Do you remember a club called called Americas in Southall? No. That was another place. It was like anyone west of London, America, Southall, they played all the really good function. Yeah. Chris Hill used to go yeah. down there and he was a character. I loved all that. I didn't. I never did the Camden sort of weekenders and stuff like that. I always wanted to, but I was a bit young at the time. But we used to do Dunstable, uh, yeah. Dunstable all-nighters and yeah. stuff like that. But there was always this kind of... I really loved the funk scene. Funkadelic and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. I was less so into the kind of northern soul scene, so you always had to be kind of. You could turn up at a venue and they'd just be playing northern soul all yeah. night, which was great. Yeah. But it wasn't what I was. Yeah. What I was particularly looking for at that particular time. Yeah. Yeah. I suppose I was kind of more of a disco boy. I really enjoyed the, that three-part documentary. I, I thought the first two parts were fascinating, yes. and the last one when it went out yeah. to Vegas and it was about that you've got to have these prepaid tables with this this much for this bottle of whiskey and I was I was I've, I've zoned out here yep. when you had that promoter going but if you pay for this table you can overlook the DJ booth and watch what the DJ is doing and I was just thinking that's not clubbing you don't be really watching anything you want to be lost in it right it's everything I hate about clubbing now you know that kind of scene you know I'm older now so I'm not connected with the street as it were but what I loved about those eras was I was young and you were connected with yeah. the street and particularly when you were playing in bands you know you get to know that's the one thing I loved about the whole live scene you just meet so many kind of eclectic and different people and they'd introduce you to different scenes of music and stuff and, th and then you kind of go off on these sort of explorations and then there would be you know even if it was like some one bloke with one turntable playing records in some dingy little club somewhere it was vibey yeah. And it was really inclusive, whereas for me, that's all exclusive and yeah. it's a bit wanky. That's not what Jazzy B was all about, was it? No, not at all. You know, it was not about, you know, bringing people together and, and having a good time. You know? I always promised my missus, who love the same album and stuff, I said, if they ever play live again, we'll go. And they, in Henley, they have this Rewind Festival, which is a kind of 80s That's thing, right, yeah. Which is kind of everything I don't like. Uh, and I, so I've, there's people I know who've played there and gone, do you want to be on the guest list? And I've been, nah, you're all right, thanks. And then a couple of years ago, Soul to Soul played. Uh, so it was quite funny, actually. I rang Midger and went, any chance you can put me on the guest list? And so he gave me a couple of tickets and then I wanted to take a couple of mates. So I rang Phil Oakey and said, can you put me on the guest list? And it turned out that Shuman League were bloody headlining that night. So I felt a bit of a charlatan blagging my way in there. But I just wanted, I wanted to see my missus age 50 down the front at age 25 again with Soul to Soul. That's, that's wonderful. Hello, I've interrupted the podcast again, haven't I? Sorry, it won't take a sec. All I want to say is the songs that we're talking about in this podcast, if we can't play them, it's just because of the regulations regarding playing licensed music and such so if you want to hear the songs just go over to spotify and search off the beat and track podcast and you can listen to all the songs because i put playlists up for each of these 
if you can't find it on there, I'll send links on all the social media accompanying each episode. So you've just got to press that one button and you can go through and you can enjoy all the songs that our guest picks. Anyway, I'll shut up, get back to the podcast. See you on the other side. But but to go back on something that you said about them, them, them kind of rewind festivals, what, what's, what's your kind of, what is it that you don't like about them kind of nostalgic festivals and events? Because I've, I've had a few people and I've had acts that like, that more indie bands that are now doing these things called like Shine Weekenders, which is all the, the mid-90s bands playing these weekenders and that. And, 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 and some of them sort of shudder at the word nostalgia because they're still creating music yeah. as well. Like, what, what, what's your, you know... What, it's, it's exactly that reason. I think this, this whole thing, you know, I love looking back. It's great uh, because actually you can track paths to music you're into now and you can kind of trace it back. I think that's the... The sad thing about losing things like sleeve notes, you know, nerds like me would look at the sleeve notes and be, oh, yeah, so he produced that and he also worked on that. So then I go back and explore stuff with that. Absolutely. So it's not like nostalgia is a bad thing, but look, Henley's pretty posh and it just kind of struck me as a kind of slightly cynical marketing exercise in bands that otherwise might not get arrested. That said, when we did go, when I finally went, right, Salt of Soul playing, we'll go, I'll blag these tickets. It was actually a really, really good day. Yeah. People were civilised. You know, you'd, somebody would knock your pint and apologise immediately yeah. and buy you a new pint. Uh, everyone was just in it for a laugh. Yeah. So I think it had I'd probably been a little bit harsh. Well, I'd definitely been a little bit harsh on it. So I was kind of tempted to go back again and just embrace the whole thing and do the day glow sticks and the Dealey Boppers and all the rest of it. Got your funky dread t-shirt on. Yeah. Brilliant. <laughs> My original. <laughs> probably couldn't fit into now. <laughs> all right, Dave. Well, um, whilst we're speaking about um, your, your hometown, track six is a favourite uh, song from an artist uh, from your hometown. Yeah, in fact, that was county. I thought it might county. Be, sorry, I, I sorry. It might be country at first. Um, but you yeah, won't county. be the first. I've had a few people say, "Yeah, uh, I've gone for the Beatles," and I'm like, "Really? They're not from there." So <laughs> <laughs> well, I could get away with that with George, but um, yeah, it's odd. I mean, there's a lot of, like I said before, you know, a lot of kind of wealthy musicians move out this way once they've made the money. Uh, it's predominantly rock based round here, which kind of isn't my scene. However, it's an interesting segue into this. In that, um, one of the studios I used to frequent was a place called Genetic, which was Martin Russian's studio, which wasn't far. And that did like Human League Dare and stuff. And as that started to go out of business and out of vogue, a place called Hook End Manor started to kind of rise through the ranks. And that was Trevor Horn's place. Uh, and that's in the same county where I live. So my my track really was a seal track from that Trevor had produced that came out of that studio. That was the first seal album, wasn't it, yeah. that you worked on? Yeah. 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 Uh, I think I chose the track Violet because, look, Trevor's in, uh, production is just impeccable. I know, you know, I know people who know him and they say, look, he genuinely does have golden ears. I know people who were in bands with him in, in the old days. Do you remember a track called Tina Charles' I Love to Love? Of course. That was Trevor on bass. That really? Was, that was my mate on guitar, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, you know, he's he's been around a long time. He 
certainly from talking to my mate Jeff, who was in the band with him, he said, and they're still mates, he said, you know, Trevor really does have golden ears. And I mean, like you say, the Frankie stuff, the Frankie stuff was powerful. You know, when things like Rage Hard and stuff, that was that had power and balls. It was slightly menacing, but the production was impeccable. And then Seal kind of came along, and I guess it's that kind of soul voice again. Uh, and we all, you know, everyone knows Crazy and all of those tracks. And I bought that album and just went through it. And there were, uh, there didn't really seem to be any fillers on that track. And Violet for me was just impeccable. And I was just getting together with my missus at the time. We'd gone through a kind of fairly traumatic relationship. And yeah, it just said everything about where I was at that time. Oh, nothing but fond memories on that then. Yeah, in fact, after you, uh, after you, I filled in the questionnaire, I played it again. And there's a different version that's out there. There's some with him kind of talking at the beginning. I was like, oh, no, 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 no. Stop this. Yeah. I want the original. In fact, I, I found it really difficult to find it. I ended up digging the CD out. But yeah, impeccable. Because that, that, that album was, was, was huge. Obviously, everybody remembers him fronting uh, Killer for Adamski, yeah. which was. Well, you know, still, I think one of the greatest dance records ever made, and uh, and then it was crazy. It was a big single, and I was I was driving uh, to, to to Norfolk with, with with my wife the other day, and and we put on an absolute eighties, nineties, or something, whatever it was, and uh, Future Love Paradise come on, and I hadn't heard that since I bought that on cassette single when I was a kid, and it's an incredible single, and and you. And it's weird because obviously Seal went on to become a, a superstar, didn't he? A massive rock star. And uh, and I just thought, oh, you, obviously whenever people play Seal on the radio, it's generally Kiss from a Rose or, yeah. or Crazy. And I was like, why does Future Love Paradise not get the airplay? It's, it's, it was a cracking single and his vocal on it, he's, he's, he's off the scale. Yeah. Yeah, phenomenal. Yeah, utterly phenomenal singer. Okay. It just seemed to me to be a kind of perfect synergy. Great production, great playing, uh, and this amazing voice and a load of synths. Mm. It was just like, well, okay, this is everything. This yeah. is everything I need today. Yeah. You, you and, and like Soul to Soul, you 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 couldn't move for Seal at that point when that came out. He was the he was the superstar of his time, wasn't he? he was like you, you know he was winning every Brit Award under the sun. I'm sure at that point and. Yeah, and he looked incredible as well then, didn't he, Sue? Yeah. He looked absolutely amazing. Everyone and going, what's that on his face? What's yeah, his face? exactly. <laughs> All, right. All right, well, for the last track, Dave, this is your chance to um, to, to, to be a show-off and, and, be, and be a DJ and, and tell people what they need to go and listen to because it's, it's the track where you get to pick a song that people may not be aware of. I'm so conflicted on this. Well, you've, you've, you've sent me over two, so you, you can have two. Thank you. You've done well, mate. Go on, I'll give you another one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, John Martin's Small Hours for me. John, that was a sort of another another side of my life which I th which was amazing. I was fortunate enough to meet him at a good time in his life uh, and at a pivotal moment in mine. And uh, before I met him, my uncle was a musician and... Uh, He'd taken me to a mate's house uh, and they just put on this album called One World, uh, which was John Martin's album from the kind of mid-70s. And everything about it just... Maybe it was the vibe of, you know, the 
the room at the time and stuff but it was on a record player and the sound system was nice and stuff and it just sounded incredibly warm and amazing uh so i kind of went off on an exploration who is this guy john martin and this small hours track uh was recorded not far from here actually it was um Chris Blackwell's place, which was overlooking a lake, and it was quite near a railway track, and actually on the track you can hear the train going past, and you can hear these geese, and it was engineered by a guy called Phil Brown, who did the Talk Talk stuff, Wow! which are both amazing albums, in fact they should have, at least one of those should have appeared on my list somewhere, but, and I didn't know that until I read Phil Brown's book, and what happened was for some reason Chris Blackwell took credit as engineering it. The now, Talk Talk, or... The John Martin, this John particular Martin, yeah. John Martin album. And when I read it, I was like, oh, it all falls into place because there are very kind of Talk Talk-esque parts to the production. And in the middle of this kind of ambient noodling is this, what I think is probably the most amazing synth solo ever. And it was done by Steve Winwood. And by all accounts, it was done on a multi-moog, not a mini-moog. And the multi-moog had... Uh, velocity sensitivity and after aftertouch really so that you could press a key harder and it would introduce a degree of expression open the filter or make the note louder and i think it's probably the seminal synth solo ever uh, and you can play small hours at my funeral any day of the week well hopefully i'll only die once but um yeah it's just an amazing track uh, and john did another version of it uh, which carl actually adores i can't remember what it's called now but he did it for a film, and Carl loves that version, whereas I love the original version. Uh, but you can hear the pain in John's vocals. It's 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 an amazing piece. So yeah, I'd love everyone to check that out. Well, uh, we do a, a Spotify playlist to accompany the podcast, so we put all the tracks that we, we speak about on there, and and uh, we throw a talk talk track in there as well. Why not? But you you have sent two over, and, uh, and 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 the other one I'm I'm interested to. Blue Nile, man. Blue Nile was just this band. So I used to hang out in a record shop in the local town. A friend of mine worked in there. In fact, it was always, it was the way that you kind of got into the music industry a bit. It was kind of, you'd work behind a record store and then you'd end up repping for a label and then you might become an A&R guy. And this guy, this guy had kind of was desperate to do that route. And I used to go in kind of every week and go, anything any good? And we were into very different music, so he'd kind of go, yeah, I think this is crap, but you'll probably like it. And he played me, uh, and, he, and I bought the first Blue Nile album, uh, Walk Across the Rooftops, and fell in love with that. And then, you know, a decade later or whatever, I think it was 89 when they came out with the second album, because they weren't exactly the speediest at doing anything. Uh, that, yeah, Hats came out. Uh, and for me, that particular track was just like, yeah, you can play this at my funeral. I uh, I was touring at the time, so I had a discman. You know, mm. So nice. I was kind of taking around a very select amount of CDs with me. But that kept, in fact, funnily enough, that and the Seal album kind of kept me occupied in the bunk at night. That's what I put on the, on the headphones. And the Blue Nile album was just, it just seemed to me to be the perfect synergy. You know, great songs... Buchanan's voice is just heartbreaking. Very soulful, I think. Uh, and then you've got this synth work, which is really understated, but just underpins everything beautifully. And then later on, I met um, one of them. Uh, and 
he told me that it was all done on a Jupiter 8. And I was like, I don't even know how you get that sound out of a Jupiter 8. So it just became this kind of... Everything they did became a bit of an obsession for a while. Uh, I used to see him live. In fact, I saw him on the first tour. And the humility that Paul Buchanan had. And, and, he, and he always appeared to be right on the edge of just not making that yeah. note. And the whole audience, you could feel the audience kind of willing him. And there's something, when you see a live band and the audience are breathing in unison with that anticipation of the expectation yeah. of, will he make that note or not? It was just a really beautiful... Um, it was a beautiful gig. And then at the end of it, he was just like, we had no idea the response to playing live was going to be like this. And you could see they were genuinely choked about it. So for me, they became, yeah, definitely one of the special bands. And, and they are. And, you know, we, we've just mentioned Talk Talk. And, and over the last sort of maybe sort of five to ten years, bands have now started citing Talk Talk as a major influence and, and I think Talk Talk are getting the respect and you know that they deserve for being an incredible band. It feels that Blue Nile don't get the nod they deserve. You know, I, I think that the music they made is is just as vital as what Talk Talk was doing and just as influential. Yet Blue Nile it's it's only the real heads that seem to to, to, to talk about them and it just seems like that they more people should know about them, so it's, it's a great reason for you to choose this track. Brilliant. Yeah. No, more people should definitely know about them. I mean, I, was, I wasn't wildly keen on... I like the next album, but the one after... I like the one with Family Life on it. I mm -hmm. thought that was great. I wasn't wildly keen on the one with High, I think it was, that followed that. But those first two albums were just, like, impeccable, impeccable mm. production. So much space in the arrangements and stuff. Yeah. And then his voice. And I think... You know, if you think about people like John Martin, John Martin had a load of soul in his voice. Paul Buchanan had a load of soul in his voice. And there was something about a Sc the Scottish scene. Uh, maybe it was because they didn't go out because it was too cold or something. <laughs> <laughs> so he's sitting in the The proclaimers always wore big jackets. It must have been. It must have been. <laughs> oh, amazing. Dave, it's been an absolute joy, mate. No, thank you very much. It's been really um, good fun. So... What's what's coming up? Uh, for me, uh, more software. <laughs> uh, yeah, I've just finished a session with a guy from um, Future Sound of London, which has been amazing. Uh, he's a really, really interesting character. Um, I've basically given him loads of stuff in a style that he wants. And he used a particular sampler in the old days, uh, S612, which kind of gave you um, like one second at full bandwidth, at full quality. So... He seems to be like a forensic producer where he goes in and finds the kind of right one second piece and places it in exactly the right place. Uh, and yeah, that's that's I'm really excited by how that's going to turn out because um, the other musicians who are involved are people like Paul Weller and a load of guys who are from the kind of Canterbury prog scene. So that was cool. Yeah, uh, and... Uh, yeah, a few bits. Uh, I'm going up to Wonderworld next week. Uh, yeah, but more software and, yeah. And if people want to find out more about um, your software and because and, 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 and you've got a pretty lively YouTube channel, right? You've, you've put a documentary together, is that right? I did a documentary that was, um, that's not on YouTube. Uh, it's available as a Vimeo rental or a, I think we did a download. Um, yeah, that's not... Yeah, that's more about the kind of pioneers behind all this electronic uh -huh. equipment, the kind of originators of it. 
Um, I do have, we do have a YouTube channel, um, GeForce TV, but that's for the synth nerds only because yeah. it's me basically telling people how these things are used and what they were used on and stuff. Okay, okay. Well, we'll share the link to that um, when we when we put this out. And uh, and and yeah, thank you so much for inviting us into this incredible studio in, without a shadow of a doubt, the most beautiful location I've ever recorded a podcast in. It's amazing. I'm so so fortunate. Although it's bloody cold in the winter. <laughs> Thanks ever so much, mate. Brilliant. Thank you. There you go. Dave Spears. What an absolute lovely gent. Really, really welcome in. When you turn up and out comes a tray with fresh coffee, some cups and saucers and a plate of biscuits, you know it's going to be a good day, right? Not only that, he bought us sandwiches as well. That's what you want from a guest, isn't it? You turn up at theirs and they look after you. I'm sure it's meant to work the other way around. Anyway, thank you ever so much, Dave. You was an absolute gentleman for, for agreeing to do that. And I know, as, as I said to Ben as we was driving home from your wonderful house, um, that we really enjoyed that chat. And, and, I'm, and I'm pretty much sure that everybody that listened to that would, would, would definitely agree with that. Um, there'll be another episode next week. Um, oh, thanks once more to Ham Plaza and a big shout out to, to his debut album, which is over on Bandcamp now. Go and have a listen to all 13 tracks. Um, yeah, that's me done. Oh, just another quickie. Um, head over to offthebeatentrackpodcast.com and check out the merch and check out the Patreon and, and just have a little look. See if there's anything over there you like. And if you can see it, if there's any copies left and you're in London, try and pick up a copy of Pod Bible, the essential guide to podcasting. Amazing interviews in there with Adam Buxton, Craig Parkinson, features on Jade Adams. Um, it's, it's all put together by an incredible team of, of podcasters uh, and, uh, and me. And, and it's great. It's, uh, it's, it's available uh, online as well, www.podbiblemag.com. Go and read it digitally. Um, and that's it. I'm done. I'll see you next week. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. It's Off The Beat & Track Podcast on the Distraction Pieces Network. Keep me stew with him. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. 
Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.